Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It was originally recorded on July 30th of 2019. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Writing can be cathartic, and for novelist Jennifer Gilmore, it's a way to tell parts of her own personal story. Gilmore, like thousands of Americans, chose adoption to start a family. But it wasn't an easy journey. She's written about her experiences, experiences that have shaped her fictional books like The Mothers and If Only. Today Where We Live, we talk with Gilmore about why she chose open adoption in the U.S. Have you adopted a child or children? What was the process like for you and your family? Later, we'll explore how adoptees in Connecticut have been pushing lawmakers to let them obtain their original birth certificates. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Jennifer Gilmore joins us via Skype today. She's also a visiting assistant professor of English at Lafayette College. Uh, Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's start off when we talk about open adoption. What does that mean exactly? Um, Open adoption, which most adoptions are domestically in this country, means that the birth family, the birth mother, the birth father, and the prospective adoptive parents know each other to varying degrees, depending on what they agree on. And so this option, why was that desirable for you and your husband? Well, we went into this, you know, we learned a lot through the, as we were going through the process, which was very protracted, but we decided, like most people do, that we wanted what was best for the child. And from all the research we did, you know, knowing who your biological family is, is really better for the child as he or she grows. Um, How soon um, after uh, you and your husband were married, did you decide open adoption was the route you were going to take? Oh, it was a while. I mean, we had been married several years. I had a career in publishing. I had a career as a novelist. He had a career as a visual artist. And um, I knew it was going to be difficult for me to have a biological family as I'd, ha- I'd been sick in my 20s. Um, we tried IVF many times. And, you know, you go down one specific rabbit hole and it's hard to get out. So it wasn't that we were necessarily tied to this idea of genetics or having our own, quote unquote, biological children. It was more that we started that way and dumped all this money into it and so wanted to kind of see that through. And when that didn't work out, we just, you know, so many people will say to you, just adopt as if it's so easy. Um, But we pulled out of the IVF, I think it was after maybe five rounds. I'm sort of in in disbelief about that now. Um, And then started the adoption process. So we'd probably been married 10 years. Mm. Did you seek out other people um, who've um, gone that route uh, of open adoption? Or how did you do your research, Jennifer? Like how I usually do research, how I do research for books, which is um, reading a lot, but also talking to a lot of people. In my At my age, um, I had known a lot of people who were adopted. And um, those children had mostly closed adoptions. And I know that they struggled with that. So that's another reason why open adoption became very interesting to us. We lived in Brooklyn, New York at the time. We had many friends who were adopting. And so we had sort of a community to work with. And a lot of people sort of 
quote unquote matched, which I'm sure we'll talk about what that means later, um, with birth mothers and started starting their families with adoption. And it looked really wonderful and remains really wonderful in a lot of ways. Um, so that's the route we decided to take. The reason we did domestic was, I don't know how much you want to get into this, but international at the time. So this was six years, no, nine years ago now. And international adoption like Russia and Guatemala, those were still open countries when we started to look at adoption. Yet it seemed very volatile, which, you know, what would happen Russia has since been closed off to the U.S., the same with Guatemala. And we had the sense that what was happening in those countries wasn't necessarily what was best for the children. Um, so we decided that, no, you know, having the ability to choose and having the birth mother choose us gave people a choice in the matter. And that felt more ethical. So, Jennifer, uh, walk us through the process. So how did you begin? Did you go through an agency? Did you seek out a, a birth mother? Is there like a type of website that you can use? Um, well, I am lucky enough to have a six-year-old who we adopted six years ago. Um, so I haven't done this in six years, um, though I am very in touch with what's going on, and I do write about um, about it a lot. But we, because it was such a protracted experience, we began with an agency, and we did a training with them. Um, um, down south, we where we got pictures together, learned about what open adoption was. We began writing letters to an anonymous birth mother, whoever she may be, and they have sort of a record of all the all their quote unquote clients or prospective adoptive parents. And then the, they have a website where the birth mothers and sometimes birth fathers as well come, and um, they do intakes with them, and they have sort of a file of them and all the things that you fill out in your profile, which includes, it's very disarming at first, what race you're comfortable parenting, how much drug use, um, mental health issues. And I'm not saying that these are all equivalent things, but they're all sort of lumped together and you fill out these forms and you get matched through the agency with these birth mothers. When we were starting to do this, we went online as well through their birth site, uh, through their websites. So it was a combination of old fashioned, in-person um, matching and then this sort of digital uh, internet search, which has since taken over. Mm. We had a lot of problems with the internet because, you know, at that, I'm a novelist, I'd had a lot published and we were forced to use our first and last names. And so people could really find me and that became problematic later. Mm. Um, so we had to stop using that agency. But that's how it began um, in any case. Jennifer Gilmore is joining us via Skype. She's an adoptive parent, also author of several novels, including two that center on adoption, The Mothers and If Only, as we learn more about the open adoption uh, experience that Jennifer had, as well as uh, you know why uh, some adoptive families choose to have this uh, open uh, adoption process with uh, biological parents. Jennifer, I wanted to uh, learn more about uh, the process, again, that you were just uh, outlining for us, uh, starting with uh, the letters. Uh, so in effect, you're selling yourself uh, to uh, these uh, birth parents. So what did you include in those letters? Yeah, I mean, well, my husband and I made a pact that we were going to be as honest as possible. And I don't, you know, because you are selling yourself, you want to be chosen. But, you know, as a novelist and just as a person, I have no idea what somebody's memories are going to be. Um, I remember talking to a birth mother who matched with a friend of mine who had written about a Christmas tree and she had memories of like chopping down a tree with her father and that really connected her. So without knowing a person, you're just really writing to an idea. You really 
have to be sort of true to who you are. And the more specific you are and the more you can sort of show who you are as people. And we were really authentic about that. Um, we had pictures of, you know, with our niece and nephews, with our friends' children. We had all our hobbies, and we travel a lot because because of a variety of reasons. So, you know, hopefully we would appeal to a birth mother who, at that time, could deal with their her um, child living in New York City, which was a, a hindrance, it seemed, um, and who liked to travel, who was in the arts. And in that way, sort of, you are connecting almost in a genetic way. So that was really, I want to just say also about open adoption, as much trouble as we had in the process, we had a lot of, um, I wouldn't even call them birth mothers because they weren't real. We had a lot of scams and I'm sure we'll get into some of the, the real hiccups, which is a generous word that can happen in open adoption. Our open adoption now is a wonderful thing. Um, I have no fear about, um, the birth parents or the birth parents' families. We see them every year. I'm so happy that my son gets to see um, where he comes from. And a child can't have too much love. So it, when it works out, it it really works out. Um, the process can be really hard. Mm. Uh, we're going to learn more about uh, how you found uh, your son in just a little bit, uh, Jennifer. But uh, back to, you know, filling out the form of the, you know, the kind of baby you wanted, what was open to you and your husband? You mentioned uh, race. So I'm just curious, like how you had those conversations and, and how did you, uh, which boxes did you, did you check off? Which ones were you not comfortable checking? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, an interesting question. I mean, it was shocking to sort of get these boxes as if, you know, people can be fit into boxes. Um, so I think most adoptive parents have thought more about parenting than most people. Um, why do you want to be a parent? People would ask me. And, you know, it, it's a, it's a difficult question. Um, in regards to the boxes, we, we were, I mean, and I'm not patting myself on the back for this in any way, but we were very open to all races. We wanted to be parents, you know, and, um, we would have done diligence if we had a transracial adoption um, to try and make that. I mean, I have a lot of friends who have transracial adoptions and they work really hard to make that experience um, to celebrate all backgrounds of their kids. But um, we weren't ter like incredibly comfortable with um, children with challenges, um, physical challenges, because uh, largely because of how we were living. We're in a fourth floor walk up in New York City. We didn't, we had a tiny apartment. We just didn't feel like we were the best family for that child. Um, but other than that, we were fairly open. I think we went into uh, the drugs and alcohol box, you know, with trepidation and then learned a lot about it and learned also, you know, how many people do you know who don't know they're pregnant for the first three months and have a glass of wine with their salmon, you know? I mean, so if you're saying, um, I don't want any alcohol, you are eliminating so many people. Mm. So it's really, and I also found, and this is very interesting, you know, boxes are just boxes, but when we met and, and then you get these big self reports, medical reports of their families. And it's, it's frightening. I mean, if I was to lay out my family, um, that history, I don't think it would look that great in all the places either. So once you meet people, everyone has their story and you kind of fall in love with the person. So you're, um, Jennifer, you're talking about uh, you would have to check a box if you were comfortable if, say, the birth mother had had a prior drug use. Is that what you're yes, talking about? I, 
different kinds of drugs, different kinds of alcohol. They're all just, they're all kinds of boxes. Um, so you really had to educate yourself and what that meant. Um, and what you were, what you're taking off the table. If you say no drug and alcohol use, that also means, you know, it, in this sort of algorithm, it means antidepressant medication. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so you have to work with what you're comfortable with, but you have to stay with what you're comfortable with and be true to your limits, I guess. So when you uh, went through this process, were you thinking that you would hear from a birth mother and be connected with the baby fairly soon? I mean, what was the timeline for the well, first Well, the mantra of adoption is it's not if you get a child, it's when, right? Um, and again, you know, and I'm, I'm sure we'll hear more about this later in the, in the segment, but, um, there are a lot more people who want children than there are children in the adoption community. And I'm talking about, um, infants, um, the foster care to adopt is a very different system. Um, but so we didn't know any of these things. We thought, Oh, you know, we're so cool. We'll get it. You know, what, whatever silly thing you say about your, you tell yourselves. Um, and we didn't understand that when you match with a birth mother, that doesn't mean that that's going to come to fruition. Um, and in some ways that's fair and ethical. A woman who is going to give birth to a child has every right to change her mind and make decisions that she thinks is best for her child. And I want to emphasize that in this situation, I mean, I feel like birth mothers do get vilified a lot and, um, they are doing, they are placing their children because they don't feel they'll be the best mothers for them. They are doing it out of love. And I really began to understand that. Um, we were dealing with a lot of women who weren't birth mothers in the end. They weren't even pregnant. But um, but it, but the birth mothers we did deal with, even though we were quote unquote matched and things happened along the way um, that changed that and we didn't end up parenting their children, um, they, you know, I think were trying to do the best they could for their child. Jennifer, tell us more. You said that... Uh along the way, you were then contacted with women who ended up not being pregnant. Yes. So they were trying to scam you. How did they get yeah. your information? Well, as I mentioned, we had to put our first and last names on these sites. So I would get at any time, you have an 800 number, you have an email account, you are open to sort of, and I think that there, you know, there needs to be more protective protection for prospective adoptive parents, but as open you are and as available as you are, the more you will be contacted. So we would kind of let ourselves be open. Um, we, a lot of, um, as we know in this world, a lot of people are in trouble and <clears throat> we had some emotional scams, people who didn't even want money. They just wanted to talk. They wanted to feel powerful for once. So, um, I was in a very long relationship. I think I wrote about this in an essay for the New York times with a woman who I, I don't believe was pregnant. And, um, we had a long email relationship and, and then, you know, she sort of disappeared. I've even met her once. Um, and again, this is, this is, we have this all the time. I mean, I'm reading about, you know, all these kinds of romantic scams in a way, this is a romantic scam. This is a way to get, you know, for people to have emotional control. So, um, even though I understand it now in hindsight, it was very, very painful to think, oh, I'm going to have this baby and here's the due date. 
and so on. And I'm going to have this real relationship, this sort of loving relationship with the birth mother that's really open. And then to have it not be real is really is really disturbing. Jennifer, you've written about um, other um, instances uh, during this uh, journey uh, to adopt a baby where uh, you, in fact, did adopt a baby, uh, but um, the baby ended up going back to the birth mother. That must have been a, a painful experience. Can you talk a little bit about what happened? Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, technically, the baby hadn't been adopted yet. So you wait. Um, I was there with um, this birth mother who my husband and I had a pretty um, extensive relationship with. And um, I cut the umbilical cord of this baby and we were waiting for the paperwork to go through. So there's a couple of weeks of this paperwork of processing. And um, each state is different, which is also an issue, but um, the birth mother, and I believe this is completely ethical, has the right to change her mind. Um, What happened in this instance was not that she changed her mind. It was that she was in an abusive relationship and the baby was someone else's and she wanted to keep the baby safe, but she had no intention of um, having us parent the child. So um, when that all went down in a very complicated and and very upsetting, traumatizing way, um, the baby is no longer with us. We had him for a couple of weeks. Um, We hadn't taken him home yet. We were still waiting for things to go through. Um, So these kinds of things can happen. It's hard to think about um, how laws can protect everyone. The birth mother needs to be protected. The birth mother needs to be able to change her mind. How can you know when you're pregnant what it's going to feel like once the baby comes? But uh, at the same time, you know, these kinds of scams or ploys are, um, are very, very difficult and so challenging on prospective adoptive parents who are financially strapped often and really emotionally distraught even by the time they, they get to the process. So what made you and your husband keep going, having going <laughs> up and down this roller coaster, Jennifer? Um, we had our, uh, we were very close with the person who was doing our home study, which is something where they come to your house and they make sure the fire alarms are in place and that you have everything. And, um, they talk with you about what, you know, who you are. And that usually happens once, but it happened three times for us. And the third time she said, you know, so many people would have opted out on this. And we just said, I, we're just in it. We, it was something we both agreed on, um, that we really wanted to see it through. And, You know, somebody said to me, a really good friend said to me once, you know, everyone I know who really wanted a child got one. And I was so offended. People say the craziest thing to you, things to you when you're trying to adopt, when you have an adopted child. Um, They don't do it out of malice, but they say crazy things. So I thought, oh, so if I don't do this enough, you know, if I don't want this enough, it won't happen. But, you know, that's not true. We have to know our limits. And I don't think we knew our limits. In the end, now looking back, I'm so glad, you know, that we stayed in it. But I think it's okay to say, I can't do this anymore. And um, to say, you know, I've gotten, I get a lot of mail from people who are in it and they are so distraught or they're, or their person who they, they thought they were adopting has been taken for a variety of reasons. I mean, it's so awful to hear these stories. Um, So how do you extricate? yourself um, once you're sort of in it. Um, It's very hard. But I think once you make a decision to live a quote unquote child free life or to keep going, it's just the decision that's really Mm -hmm. the hardest part. And what about the impact on your marriage, Jennifer, during all of this? (laughs) Yeah, it was really challenging. I mean, um, 
I was lucky in that my husband and I thought about the big picture in the same way. You know, that he really want, didn't want to do IVF. He wanted to go straight to adoption. So he was really on board. We were, we were thought uh, the little, we were, we were the kind of people who sweat the small stuff. <laughs> but um, so the dailiness was very difficult, but we really felt like we wanted to do this. Um, but yeah, it was really challenging. And, you know, and financially it was really challenging, which also adds stress to a marriage. Um, so yeah, I don't, wish to be in that moment again. Uh, this is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Jennifer Gilmore is my guest today. Uh, she's an adoptive parent, also a novelist. Uh, when we're back from the break, we'll hear more about how uh, Jennifer was able to adopt successfully. And we'll talk more broadly about the laws in place to protect birth mothers, as well as uh, what's needed to help adoptive families. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It was originally recorded on July 30th of 2019. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Jennifer Gilmore, an adoptive parent and novelist. Some of her fiction books are based on her experiences trying to adopt a baby. Now, have you adopted a child or children? What's been your experience? You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Jennifer, we were talking earlier that you and your husband decided to adopt after trying uh, IVF uh, at least five times. Uh, what was the cost at this point, uh, you know, working with an agency, you know, trying to meet up with birth mothers? I'm just curious of how you handled that financial strain. You know, that's a really good question. Um, I... I don't know exactly. I'm a writer, so I got paid in chunks. I know that. Um, also, I had written, I, I wrote about it a lot, um, and partially that was to get paid. I wrote, um, and then I wrote a piece for Vogue that was a very challenging piece to write, and someone I knew read it, and she offered to help me financially at the end. We could not have done it on our own, to be honest. Um, we had an unusual experience, for sure, but we went from an agency to a private lawyer. Um, there are also, you know, you want to help birth mothers as much as you can, but how do you protect yourself, protect them? So um, you're all, th those aren't the only fees. You're also sort of as, you know, through the lawyer or through the agency assisting with someone you've matched with. Um, so it's challenging. It really is challenging. And it's not for the faint of heart emotionally and financially. It, it can it can be very expensive. It can also happen very quickly. Um, it just depends on the situation. You just don't know. Mm. Uh, I mentioned that you've written about this. Uh, you've used parts of your personal story uh, to help shape some uh, fiction that you've written. Uh, do you feel feel like uh, at the same time while you want to get this information out to help uh, prospective adoptive families that your story might scare people off? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Mothers was a, a novel for adults. Um, and I, I was writing a different novel. And when this was happening to me, I just found it so I wanted to make it interesting to myself. So I wasn't uh, so I, I found like the issues of race and class and the sanctioning of motherhood in the culture and how um, adoptive children feel to be so fascinating that I wanted to write a book about the process. I feel like there were so many books about what happens when it's over and when everyone's happy. But the process, you know, and it is a novel, but um, I, I wanted to be honest about the process. I 
people write me all the time, you know, should I give this to my friend who's adopting? And I'm like, maybe not. <laughs> but, um, but then this book I wrote for teens, which came out last year, um, is called If Only. And that's a much more processed um, book. And it's much more for my imagination, but it takes the birth mother's um, choices and the adoptive child's choices and imagine sort of these alternative universe. Uh, we all could live so many alternative universes, especially in adoption. So it's about more about imagination, I bet. You can join our conversation uh, if you're an adoptive uh, parent or if you've been adopted as we talk about open adoption, this idea that adoptive families have this uh, communication uh, open with a, a biological parent or parents. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Sarah's calling from Kent. Sarah, go ahead. Hi, I'm Sarah, and my husband and I are adoptive parents. Uh, our daughter's now 15 months old. Um, but yeah, we adopted in Connecticut, and we are still in touch with the birth grandmother and the birth mother occasionally. And it's been an, an interesting new process. Mm. So congratulations on on your uh, new baby. I'm just curious why you Thank chose you. open adoption. Did you feel that you'd have more uh, success finding a child? Um, no, I mean, I think going into it, we didn't know much about what was done normally, um, but we did some research and saw that most adoptions in the U.S. now are open, and we read a lot of research that showed that a lot of older adoptees are happier uh, <laughs> when there is an open adoption. So, yeah, in the end, we had to decide what was going to be best for the child, so we went that route. Did you have uh, any uh, hiccups along the way? Uh, Jennifer, um, you know, sh her journey to uh, her baby that she was finally able to adopt was not was a rocky one. Uh, did you have a an easy journey, Sarah? You know, I'm not going to say easy. I think we were in a difficult place before we even got to the adoptive process as far as becoming parents. But um, you know, the paperwork process and, and all of that is quite extensive and, and they really, I mean, it's a really good thing. They look into your whole background. You're sharing basically every corner of your life. <laughs> um, but when it came down to it, actually, it went super fast for us. We were only officially on the books for a couple months when we got matched. So we were really, really lucky. Mm -hmm. Well, Sarah, thank you uh, for calling in to where we live. Um, you know, it's interesting, uh, Sarah, mentioning that a lot of uh, adoptions domestically now are open adoptions. So I wanted to bring into the conversation Ryan Hanlon, who's vice president for the National Council for Adoption. This is an advocacy group for adoptive families. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So maybe you could pick up uh, on what Sarah was talking about. You know, what does the uh, adop adoption landscape, so to speak, look like in our country? Uh, you know, why are more people choosing open adoption and why? Well, Sarah, your caller, and Jennifer, your guest, were both right to say that the majority of adoptions are open in our country, and um, that has been the case for many years now. Um, in terms of the landscape, um, every year there's um, approximately 18,000 or so uh, private domestic adoptions, what we might think of as infant adoptions in the United States. And um, to answer your question why, well, um, we pursue open adoptions because when a child is adopted into a new family, it will sever that child's legal ties to their birth family, but it doesn't end the emotional connection that they have to that birth family. And so as a way to honor that, as a way to um, really help that child form healthy relationship dynamics um, and the adoptive family to develop healthy relationship 
dynamics with their child uh, and build trust and attachment, we encourage families to have a connection with the birth family after an adoption. So how much does that cost on average uh, for a family uh, to have an open adoption? So pursuing a private domestic adoption in the U.S. Um, can range um, pretty widely. Um, a range from twenty to thirty thousand is is um, probably what most people would expect when they're going to pursue a private domestic adoption, and that's going to be impacted by a lot of factors. Um, one of which is is the adoption going to be in state or is it going to be out of state, um, and and then what kind of time frame are we going to look at? Your caller Sarah said she had a relatively fast process. Your guest Jennifer had a very long process. That might require additional uh, visits with the social worker, updating home study, things that could add more cost to the process. Mm. Uh, when uh, we were talking with uh, Jennifer, you know, she said that laws vary from state to state uh, in terms of the rights of a, a biological parent, as well as you know, maybe there should be um, some more uh, guidelines or protections for adoptive families. What can you tell us about the laws uh, from one state to the other, Ryan? Well, she was exactly right. They are different in every state, and so it would be important for anyone pursuing a private domestic adoption, or really any adoption, to ensure that they have a competent professional who's familiar with the laws and the processes in the state where they're pursuing an adoption. Um, and even if they're going to be pursuing an adoption in another state, they'd want to have a competent professional, either an agency or an adoption attorney, um, in, in their state to help them navigate what's needed, um, and then they would partner with another competent professional in the state where the adoption is happening. I have a, a document in front of me just talking about uh, Connecticut uh, laws, and so um, an adoption can happen about 48 hours after birth, but within a month, the birth parent or parents could uh, seek to revoke that. Is that uh, what we find in, in most states? Yeah, and you know, we have to be so careful with the language we use around this because um, a placement might happen 48 hours later, um, but the adoption would only happen after that period of time has ended where a birth parent has an ability to change their mind about this process. And so um, even if a placement has happened, if the adoption isn't finalized, then a situation could happen where the birth parent has every legal right to change her mind or his mind and um, choose to parent their child. Um, but um, to your to your question, yes, it's going to be different in every state. I live in Virginia where the, um, birth moms have uh, 10 days after birth where they could change their mind about an adoptive placement that they've made. Um, and it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be after birth. It would be after they make a decision. And so states often will have two different time frames, one, one of which is how many days after the the birth of that child. Another might be well, how many days after an adopted adoption decision, decision has been made or an agreement has been signed. Mm. Uh, Jennifer Gilmore joining us via Skype again, adop an adoptive parent and uh, novelist. So Jennifer, tell us about um, the time uh, when you were able to finally adopt a baby. This was about six or seven years ago? Yes. Um, I just want to go back to the state-to-state -state issue. So what you find also is people trying to adopt in states where the birth mother has less time or in Florida. And I don't remember what the, what is the issue with Florida, but every, there's, um, I think a very minimal amount of time um, that, that the birth mother has. So you know, as a, I don't know how it works exactly, why we have these different laws from state to state, but you have people really negotiating all these issues to get to a state where they're most comfortable adopting a child. Um, so that, that, that was something that was of interest. Um, 
So how we ended up with my son was not through an agency, not through the private adoption, uh, private attorney, but our home study worker who um, was in New York City had, she is with an agency. They have, they don't do that much adoption, but they just had one or two a year. And she told us about one and we were able to pursue it with uh, new costs. Um, and as I said, I had some, a very generous friend who was helping us. Um, but, and that did not go down without drama. Um, but my son was born in Colorado and we were there and, and here we are six years later, we have a relationship with the, uh, birth grandparents with the birth mother. Um, we don't see her, but we are in touch with her. Um, we will see her, I hope. And every year, like the, the birth grandparents are coming next weekend to our home. I'm making them lunch. Um, my son gets to see where he gets his red hair, um, auburn hair. And, you know, a child can't have too much love. And to Tran's point about um, what's best for everyone, um, this really is. And I want to say also, I think it's best for the birth families who are grieving. And... Um, that's not negligible here, that an open adoption can often be really helpful to birth mothers. Not always, and some will choose not to be involved, um, and that's their right. But I think open adoption, you know, there's so many families involved. We don't, you don't even realize. Um, and so that, that is really best for everyone. Uh, Michelle's calling from Wallingford. Michelle, uh, you're an adoptive parent. Uh, what did you want to tell us? Um, I just wanted to share our story that as an adoptive parent, we've had a wonderful open adoption. We have a four-year-old uh, daughter. And one thing that really helped us in the process was using what we felt was a very reputable adoption agency. Um, I know there's different ways to pursue domestic open adoption these days, but we found an agency here in Connecticut, ad Adoption from the Heart. And what we liked about them was they really provided a lot of support for birth, birth parents. Um, by supporting and counseling and um, social workers and really people to work with them through through this tough decision that they're they're thinking about pursuing, um, so we really found a lot of um, um, uh, we, we really liked working with the agency and working with the agency also helped us avoid the issue of scams. I know that was mentioned earlier in the segment. Um, basically, the adoption agency would meet with people that said that they were birth parents and screen them, and so if they weren't actually pregnant. We never heard from those people. So I think working with that agency was really um, a great resource for us, both so that we felt we had a very ethical adoption and to avoid um, scam type situations. Well, thank you, Michelle, uh, for your call. Uh, Sarah is calling from Norwich. Sarah, I understand you were adopted. Yes, I was. And can you tell me, um, you know, we're talking about open adoption, and can you talk a little bit about your experience and have you been able or want to uh, reach out to your birth parents? Yes, um, I've actually met uh, my biological mother twice. I've um, gone out and visited her in California. And um, I am so happy that my parents decided to uh, keep in contact with her, that I was able to meet her. Um, and I have two half-brothers, actually, that I've met as well. So um, I'm, really, I'm very glad that they decided to do that. Um, but on the other hand, I don't know who my biological, well, I know my biological father's name, but I've never met him and we don't know, you know, where he is. And so it almost feels like there's a little chunk missing because of that. So I'm glad that they decided uh, with my mother that I could uh, meet her. Well, thank you, Sarah, for your call. Uh, Kay is calling from Cape Cod. Kay, go ahead. 
So my husband and I are the adoptive parents of three children. Two are biological siblings. One is not. All three are biracial. Um, one of the siblings we adopted at birth through a private agency, going through exactly what you've heard from some of the other callers. Um, it was a long and arduous job of paperwork. And in the age for us back then, we weren't on social media. So it was, it felt like a lot of privacy was being, at, giving up a lot of privacy for us, filling out paperwork, talking to friends and family who write letters. Um, we got through all of that. We got matched with a birth mother. We went down and met her and we were able to come home with this incredible baby boy. Um, it was an all private adoption. It is expensive. And um, in Florida, there is the termination of parental rights in two days. She mm. agreed that she didn't want any further contact. She was attempting to raise her older son, who was about a year older. Mm. We came home and we're raising our child no different than any other biological adoptive child, and found later that she had passed away and that we were, um, uh, that the older child was now available for adoption. Mm. Um, he was in a non-legal status. There were some complications about trying to bring it home. It was a quasi-DCF uh, private adoption to bring him home from Florida, and the two brothers met and are now inseparable. Well, thank you, Kay, uh, for your call here on Where We Live. Um, again, everyone has a, a different uh, adoption story. We're almost uh, running out of time. I wanted to go back to our guest, Jennifer Gilmore. Uh, you know, everyone, as I said, uh, has a different story. Uh, cost can be an issue. Some people have uh, success stories. Others are, are still trying. What's your advice to parents, Jennifer? My advice to parents is just, is just know, know your limits, but be as open as you can be and be as authentic as you can be. I mean, I think everyone's talking about the paperwork and it is a lot of paperwork. Um, but the more yourself you can be, the more you'll be seen for who you are. And I think that that's really important that, we're, I mean, that we're transparent and, and all of that, but, and no, and going into it, you know, it's hard to be both open and hopeful and also protective. So I think you can, try to be all three of those things. Jennifer Gilmore again joined us via Skype today. She's an adoptive parent, also a novelist of uh, two, uh, two books focusing on adoption, specifically The Mothers and If Only. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Also, Ryan Hanlon was with us via phone, vice president for the National Council for Adoption. Uh, Ryan, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, coming up on Where We Live, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to learn about efforts in Connecticut for adoptees to seek out their original birth records. Are you one of them? Join our conversation on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It was originally recorded on July 30th of 2019. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, we've been talking about the experiences of parents seeking an adopted child or t seeking to adopt a child. Now, if you've been adopted in Connecticut, have you tried to seek out your original birth records? Connecticut is among a majority of states where adoptees receive amended birth certificates that omit the names of their biological parents. In 2014, there was a change that helped adoptees born after 1983 to access that information, but that leaves many adoptees prior to that date still looking 
looking for answers. For more on that, Karen Caffrey is joining me now in studio, president of the nonprofit Access Connecticut Now Incorporated. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So uh, explain a little bit about you know why there's uh, this cutoff in 1983 and why there's an issue with people obtaining their birth records in Connecticut. All right. Well, that's a great question <laughs> because it used to be the law before 1975 that all adult adoptees and their adoptive parents had the right to get the adoptee's original birth certificate. Some people are surprised to hear that. And when that was changed in the 70s, uh, efforts have been going on since that time to try and change the law back. Mm-hmm. Uh, our organization was successful in 2014 in getting it partially changed. That was a piece of compromise legislation. The The reason that date was chosen in 1983 is because the, the state of Connecticut promulgate, promulgated an affidavit that every birth parent had to swear and sign to before a court would approve uh, the termination of their parental rights. And it put them on notice that when their child became an adult, that they might be able to find the birth parents or other blood relatives. So that was what the legislative compromise was about. And we have continued to work to extend that back to the pre-83 three adoptees, including, you know, folks like myself from the era, the earlier era. So you were adopted. You were able to, again, find your, or at least know who your birth parents were because of your information or no? Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, uh, the adoption agency, which my parents work with, was the Village for Families and Children, still here in Connecticut, the oldest social service agency in Connecticut, I believe, over 200 years. And they gave my adoptive parents my birth name. Uh, It was legal. And so I I, I grew up, I had my birth name. Uh, My my mother also was able to get it from the court at one point. So I had my birth name. It was pre-internet when I searched. I was a teenager when I searched. So um, it didn't happen overnight. I did find out uh, that they had actually been looking for me but had been unsuccessful. So I've been in in reunion, as we call it, for 40 years. Mm. My goodness. So, um, you know, when this has come up in front of the Connecticut General Assembly several times, you know, what is the argument uh, to keep this information private? Well, the argument is, and it's this, there's, this is, there was a bygone era, and we say it's bygone, but it's still greatly influencing what happens now, where there was tremendous shame and stigma about a woman becoming pregnant when she wasn't married. And that really is what drives, what has driven the formation of all adoption laws, even as you reference the, the, the dual birth certificate system, where an adoptee has their original birth certificate and then their amended birth certificate, which has their adoptive parents' names on it. That was intentional to make it look as if the adoptee was born to the adoptive family to whitewash their their tainted bad blood origins. And so the um, the the initial concern was actually to protect the adoptee and keep their identity private from the birth parents because who knows what kind of terrible people they may be. Mm-hmm. As social, the field of social work evolved, the um, the idea was, well, let's try and protect, quote unquote, the birth mother from having made this terrible mistake and being a fallen woman, a sinner in some religious traditions. And so the laws were then changed to really uh, hide her identity and allow her to go forward with sort of a whitewashed life. So that's the social history that still informs a lot of the thinking around adoption. Birth parents and adoptees have been taught to fear each other. Mm to fear their connectedness. And you know what's wonderful, I have to say, listening to your show today, <clears throat> that has changed so much. That is, we now know that is, that is not healthy for anybody involved. But that's the old mindset and the small group of, of people and legislators who are opposed are sort of coming from that. Well, everyone was sort of promised nobody would know and their lives will be destroyed and this is just terrible, terrible. 
And um, in fact, it's a very tiny minority of women who do not want their identity disclosed to the adult mm-hmm. adoptee. And by the way, we're talking about adults, not children. Your mm-hmm. show today is about open adoption, which is yeah. about children. Well, what about uh, if there is a birth mother listening right now who, uh, for whatever reason, had to put up uh, her child mm-hmm. and she doesn't want that connection. She doesn't want the the biological child to be able to find her. Right. I mean, again, you said it's a tiny minority, but they do exist. They do exist. And I think the real game changer, and I would sp- say this to those those few women who, frankly, they're a small number, but they are frightened or they are perhaps they haven't shared it with some of their family members or people in their community. You've probably heard of consumer DNA testing. Okay, next question. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot turn on the television or look at the Internet. You see Ancestry and 23andMe. It is exploding. Um, la- in 2018, more people were tested, uh, took a took a consumer DNA test for $59 on sale than in every year prior. I believe the figure is about 26 million Americans have been tested. And if it continues at that rate, in two years, there will be 100 million Americans who have tested. You are going to be impacted by this whether or not you have taken a DNA test. As long as anybody in your family, your niece, your nephew, your other children, your uncle has taken a DNA test, you are findable. And happily or sadly, in a somewhat of a public way, I don't know if you've tested your DNA, Lucy, but if you have, you get an email back and all your biological relatives who have also Mm -hmm. tested are listed. So they would find out about this woman's, this Mm -hmm. birth mother's decision before she even knows she's being looked for. And that is why the law that we're proposing is actually more private for everybody involved. The adoptee will get their birth certificate, then they have the name of the individual they're looking for. They can seek that person, make a contact, and that person may refuse contact. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we live in an age where technology is changing everything. Whether we like it or not, we live in an age of transparency. It doesn't mean there is a thing that isn't called privacy, but it does mean that things that we thought were secret um, are not so secret anymore. So what is the status? Uh, Again, I mentioned this has been proposed several times before Mm -hmm. the legislature. I know uh, New York State uh, just approved uh, that they would uh, allow adoptees to have access to their birth records. Again, I think it's like one of nine or ten states now that allow that. So where does Connecticut stand? Well, New York would be the 10th state, and the bill has passed almost unanimously just this spring. Governor Cuomo hasn't signed it yet, but the signs are good that he will. Uh, We're going to be trying again in the next session because that's what we do. Um, The bill this year, we came so close. We got farther than we ever did. It did pass the Senate this year. Thank you, Senator Steve Cassano, uh, one of our champions, and our, uh, 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 Representative Christian McCarthy Vehi in the House brought it forth on the House floor toward the very end of the session. There was some limited debate, but there wasn't enough time. So we're coming back next year, and we really are looking forward to getting this done. Mm. Uh, Karen, any idea how many adoptees would be impacted? Approximately 39,500, and their adult children and grandchildren. Mm. Karen Caffrey, again, is president of the nonprofit Access Connecticut Now, Inc. Uh, we'll link to uh, their website on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Karen, thanks so much for joining us today to tell us about this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, today's show is produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Uh, thanks also to our technical producer, Kion Wolf and Jesse Steinmetz uh, on the phones today. I'm Lucy Nopithanch. You can always download our podcast, too, on any podcast app. Thanks for listening.